0: Hi, I'm Michael Senoff, founder and CEO of hardtofindseminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business all from home from my two-car garage. When my first child was born, he was very sick, and it was then that I knew I had to have a business that I could operate from home. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online it's michael senoff with michael senoffs hardtofindseminars.com the title of this interview is called how to strike marketing gold money making secrets straight from the lips of legendary direct marketing guru denny hatch denny hatch is a freelance writer designer and consultant of direct mail, direct marketing, and the author of four books on marketing and business. He has analyzed thousands of direct mailings in more than 200 categories in the past 25 years. In this Denny Hatch interview, he shows you how your business can take advantage of marketing, sales, public relations, and communications while avoiding the pitfalls. The cornerstone of Denny's success? No matter what you're selling, you're in the business of acquiring repeat customers. Listen as Denny Hatch reveals historic and fascinating stories about the billion-dollar offer that still brings in droves of subscribers, the four-martini lunch that launched Who's Mailing What, Sensational Snake Oil Salesmen, How the Supreme Court Kept the Promotion Alive, the wit and wisdom of a host of marketers like Melvin Becker, Ed Myers, Ted Goldsmith, Bob Hacker, Melvin Powers, Kurt Strohacker, Bill Jamie, Gary Halbert, Drew Kaplan, Lee Pierce, Jay Abraham, and many others. Listen and learn how to leverage competitive intelligence, how to develop breakthrough test ideas, how to identify new opportunities, how to write more compelling copy, how to get your sales letters open and read, how to phrase powerful offers, how to pick the surefire options, how to bump up your response rate, how to convert prospects to advocates using the five steps of success direct marketing, how to tell a story and connect emotionally one-to-one with your reader, how to successfully negotiate rights, and much, much more. Then he will help convince you that direct marketing techniques are not only relevant, that they are critical and indispensable if your business hopes to stand out in this maddening crowd. And don't miss the opportunity to continue to learn at the feet of the master. Go to his email newsletter called businesscommonsense.com to reap the benefits born of years of experience. And also don't forget to check out the world's best direct mail swipe file at com. Now let's get ready. I hope you enjoy the interview. What was your first experience with direct mail and direct marketing? How did you get involved in this?
1: I used to be a book salesman and I was hired by Grow Your Enterprises to run book clubs and I didn't know anything about direct mail, direct marketing, or anything else. But I went to work for Royer Enterprises, which had the Dr. Seuss books by mail, continuity series. And they proceeded to hand me off a continuity series of children's books in paperback to be sold through teachers at schools to kids. How old were you? 25. Where were you living
0: at that time? New York. Okay, so was it a direct sales
1: job? It was creating a continuity series of children's paperback books with a proviso that they wouldn't pay royalties. So it all had to be public domain and then marketing them through teachers to children in classrooms in direct competition with the scholastic paperback series. And I got the equivalent of an MBA in direct marketing doing that. I was frequently way over my head. But there were four guys running it, a guy named Ellsworth Howell who founded Brolier Enterprises, a guy named Bob Clark, one of the beloved figures of direct marketing. My boss, a guy named Luke Smith, who was a marketing manager and call who ran The continuity stuff. And these four guys knew direct mail at the time, cold. And so whenever I got into trouble or got in over my head, I would raise my hand and say, I need help. And one of the four would clear the desk, sit me down, talk me through the problem, and then send me on my way.
0: Which one was that? Which guy?
1: It depends on who was free. And my advice to anybody in business, especially starting out, is if you don't know what the hell you're doing raise your hand and say, I'm in over my head, I need help, rather than trying to fake it. There are more people in business trying to fake it, and they run aground on terrible shows doing that, when there are people there who are perfectly willing and happy to show them what to do.
0: Can you remember one of the real important lessons when you look back today, what one of these guys taught you during that job?
1: You are now going back 45 years. But I remember going to them and saying, tell me what to do, whether it was copy or list selection or the arithmetic of the thing. I was responsible for all of that, and I didn't know any of it. So I stumbled along, and with their help, I did it. And the book club we started was a success.
0: How long did you stay with those guys?
1: A couple of years.
0: What did you do after that?
1: After that, I went to work for Macmillan Book Clubs, and after that, I went to work for Meredith Book Clubs in Manhattan, Northern Island. So I ran three sets of book clubs.
0: And these book clubs were all primarily direct mail?
1: Yeah, direct mail, negative option clubs. The children's paperback was positive option. The kids had to order them. What's a
0: positive option? What's a negative option?
1: Negative option is the style of the Book of the Month Club, launched by Maxwell Sackheim and Harry Sherman in the early 1930s, whereby you sign up for this thing and they say, unless we hear from you, we're going to ship you this book. they send an announcement and they say, this is the main selection, you're going to get this book unless we hear from you. If you do nothing, you're going to get the book. If we hear from you, you send back a preference card which says, send me the main selection plus the following additional selections. Do not send the main selection, but send me the following additional selections, or send nothing this month. And you had to get it in by a certain date you were going to get the book whether you wanted it or not. So the positive option, you had to
0: send something back. The
1: positive option, you had to send something back and order the book.
0: And the negative option, you didn't have to do anything.
1: You have to do anything. The book would come.
0: Between those two, in the book club business back then, which one won hands down as far as sales, not including returns and stuff? Oh, the negative option, no question. How about today? Does the negative option still work today? I
1: think they've got real
0: problems. And other what happened was in book
1: clubs, I'd go to a publisher and say I'd like to offer this book to my club members as a main selection or an alternate selection. And here's the deal: I will pay you a royalty for every book sold. And then, if they said yes, we had two choices: buy books from them out of their stock, or more likely take rolls of paper and binding material and send it into their printer. And as their print run was going, as soon as their print run was over, the printer would then take our paper, feed it into the press and continue the print run, and then take our binding material and bind these editions with this binding material. Book club editions were cheaper than the regular trade editions which are sold in stores. So the publisher had the advantage of selling books to markets he never would reach. And he would also have the advantage of having a very large press run, because we would add, you know, 20, 30,000 copies to tack onto his press run. And so he would get the economies of scale, as would we. But that's how the book club business worked at the time. Today, with Amazon, with Barnes & Noble, with every selling discount books, in those days, there was not a Barnes & Noble in every town all over the country. And there wasn't the internet to make books available. So it was a cultural advantage to tap into, say, Book of the Month or Literary Guild, have news of books coming at you, and have the opportunity to get books at discounts. Now, of course, you can get them anywhere and always at a discount, so the book club model is essentially... I mean, it may be still going. I think the Book of the Month Club is still going, but it ain't like the old days.
0: How about the legal ramifications of the negative option, whether it's books or tape of the month, stuff sold on TV? Is that, kosher legally the negative option today?
1: There was a period back then when a very hot shock United States attorney in New York wanted to take all the book clubs to court for the negative option, saying it was dishonest, fraudulent selling. And, in fact, people liked knowing that they had to make a choice. This goes way back now. We're going to the 60s, 70s, 80s. People liked the idea of knowing that they were being part of the cultural scene by getting books and acquiring books. Books look good on shelves in the business of continuity where you have, say, a 20-volume set and you ship one a month. People bought those not so much to read as for furniture, to be on shelves, to show off to their friends and neighbors and family that these were cultural people and they had shelves full of books. So at that time, people liked the negative option and the United States attorney finally dropped the whole thing after much angst throughout the book club business. Now the negative option, I don't think they use it particularly. I mean, American Express will send you an offer for a free planner for the next year, and all you do is pay postage. And the small type, it says, and then thereafter we're going to send you a planner every year, and you'll be billed such and such. So American Express still does that. But it's cumbersome stuff, and I think most Americans, Express members keep all their calendar stuff on a computer or on a Blackberry,
0: no? Yeah. So how many books have you published yourself, personally?
1: i published three novels in the 1960s and 70s, late 60s and 70s. One about a guy who couldn't stand the noise at Kennedy Airport so he set up a World War II barrage balloon, one about the mafia running a candidate for mayor of New York, and one about a guy who went into the frozen sperm business. And they all did respectably. They sold the hardcover. They sold in paperback. All of them sold in the movies, and never a movie was made. But you know, I got some money. In- so you sold movie rights? Yeah, but no movie was ever made. I got some nice stereo stuff like that from the movie money,
0: but no movie was ever made. Give me an idea. What did movie rights sell for?
1: Back then, anywhere from one to thirty thousand dollars. Generally speaking, say it's twenty thousand dollars. They'll give you ten thousand dollars on signing. They'll give you $10,000 on the first day of principal photography, and they'll give you $10,000 on completion, and then hopefully it's some kind of payment or percentage deal when the thing is released. To anybody who's signed a movie deal, my advice is never, ever, ever sign anything that gives you a percentage of the producer's profit, because there's never a producer's profit. Get a piece of the box office receipts or a percentage of the production costs, or something, but if you said producer's profit... That all disappears into thin air.
0: So if someone said, Day Hatch, what do you do, say, in relationship to your books? Are you self-published, or did you have a publisher?
1: I had real publishers.
0: You had real publishers with all these books. Yeah. You had a publisher. Your publisher sold the movie right. Yeah,
1: and I had an agent. I don't have an agent now. Because my agent died, so I'm kind of in limbo creatively. But then, in 1984, we started this newsletter, Who's Mailing What? And who's We? My wife Peggy and me. What sparked that? I went to a lunch with the Direct Mail Writers Guild in New York, and a woman named Dorothy Kerr, who is Circulation Director of US News and World Report, said the way to be successful in direct mail is to collect mail and see who's mailing what, and find those mailings that keep coming in over and over again, which means that they are control and they are making money for somebody. Note those and then steal smart. So I started collecting junk mail.
0: What year was this? Probably
1: 1982. And my friends would collect junk mail, and I started categorizing it and cataloging it.
0: How did you start collecting? Did you sign up and get on every major list? I got on lists,
1: and I had my friends send me the stuff and get the stuff and all. This was pretty small at first, but there's a lot of direct mail out there then. And I kept it in one file drawer, and it became two, became four, became several file cabinets, became a bunch of file cabinets. There was a fellow copywriter named Harry Walsh, a lovely guy. And he would call me up and he'd say, I got a client who's doing a World War II series. You got anything you know, on World War II series I could look out to make sure I'm touching all faces? And I'd say, yeah, you know, come on over. I got one from Time Life and I got one from Columbia House. So he would come over and he would make copies of this stuff. And he'd go away and he'd use these as models. He didn't steal from them, but all the elements that had to be put in there gave him ideas for his own version of them. And one day he took me for a very, very wet lunch. Uh, what do you mean by that you mean four martinis lunch we used to drink a lot in those days I missed the three martini lunch Harry just packed it Harry would start writing at five or six in the morning he'd quit at noon and spend the rest of the day drinking
0: yeah poor guy died he was an alcoholic
1: no 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 he was a hard liver he lived hard he died of Alzheimer's it's a god awful thing he came to lunch and he said I would join your archive and I would pay you money to be a member of your archive so I could come over and get these things And I said, Harry, if I were to have a membership thing, it would mean I have to send out a newsletter to people to tell them what's in the archive, and maybe I'll do that. And I came home with three sheets of the wind, and I said to Peggy, you're going to start a newsletter. I said, what? She said, what? I said, we're going to start a newsletter on junk mail based on our archive. And she said, well, the cash flow for a freelancer couldn't be any worse than it is, so try a newsletter. So we did that, and it became very consuming. And we ran it for nine years and then sold it to Target Marketing Magazine.
0: You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. So you decided you're going to do a newsletter. What was the first step? You had to write the first issue, right?
1: When you do something on your own, you don't have to answer to a whole board of people and a big business plan. So I wrote a couple of issues. Dummy issues, and we looked at them. I got my artist to design me a logo. I got an email from a guy today saying, you wanted to hire an artist to do a logo, and the guy said, let me give you some ideas. And he sent a couple of sketches in, and the guy said, I like them. And he said, by the way, if I buy these from you, I own them. And the guy said, no, you don't. It's my design that I own. Them. And he said, what do I do about this? I said, the first thing you do is get yourself a lawyer who deals with intellectual property. But another thing for your clients, your readers, which is very important, is when a writer has produced something off his computer, the minute it is in his brain, he owns it. The minute it comes off his computer, he owns it. The minute he sends it in to the client, say it's a circulation thing for a magazine or a man for a product, the minute he sends it into a client, he still owns it. And if the client uses it without getting what's called a work for hire agreement from the guy, the guy still owns it, and if the client starts making zillions and zillions of dollars, the copywriter can say, I own this thing, and I want it back. So my advice to anybody is to get a work-for-hire arrangement before you take on a copywriter so that you own whatever that copywriter produces, because with the exception of salaried workers, if you're on salary with somebody and they're paying you salary and benefits, the company owns everything you do for them. If you hire an outsider, the only way you have that kind of ownership is the work-for-hire contract. Because my advice to any copywriter is don't sign a work-for-hire contract.
0: All right, so these first couple dummy issues of who's mailing what, you owned it, you guys put it together yourself. Oh, I owned the whole thing, yeah, sure. How did you start getting subscribers? Did you rent a list?
1: I wrote a dummy issue to see what the hell the thing would look like. Then I did what is known as a dry test. you know about dry tests?
0: I do, but why don't you tell me what a dry test is anyway.
1: Take the newsletter example. If you're going to start a newsletter, you can start publishing a newsletter then try and sell it. And you spent a whole lot of money producing the newsletter, printing the newsletter, and now you're trying to sell it. And this goes for any kind of a product. As opposed to creating a mailing which shows and describes the product and asks for an order, even though the product does not exist. But you have made the thing so real, with such appearance of reality, the guy receiving this thing believes it exists and will send you in an order. If you get enough of those, Even though you don't know how the pay-up is going to be, and even though you don't know whether the guy's going to renew because the guy hasn't seen the issues yet and decided whether he likes it or not, you at least get some idea whether this thing has legs, or somebody says it fogs the mirror. Then, if the numbers look right, you can do a confirming test, or you can produce the thing and do a wet test, which means you print the newsletter and send it out and see who the hell pays for it.
0: What's a confirming test?
1: A confirming test, if you send out 20,000 pieces to four lists, 5,000 each, and the thing seems to have legs, you then step the thing up to uh, 100,000 names.
0: For a list?
1: You step it up to 100,000 names, and you go to 10,000 to 10 lists, for example. If those tests reflect the original test, then it looks like you've got a thing, and then you can go and roll out. In tests, it is axiomatic that your rollout will never do as well as the test, for whatever reason. Why do you think that is? It could be timing. It could be all kinds of reasons but almost never does the rollout do as well as the initial test.
0: Say you do a confirming test, an initial test, numbers look good, and you're going to roll out. Mathematically, when you're going to kind of estimate what this thing will do, would you take 10 or 20% off? I mean, how would you do the mathematics on that? Is there a formula?
1: Well, direct marketing, as Joan Throckmorton said, is not the business of selling stuff. It's the business of acquiring customers and selling them more and more stuff. And with a test and a confirming test, It depends on, you've got to take the cost of your merchandise, add in 15% for returns, add 15% for bad debt, add 15% for profit, because profit is a cost. And see what your cost of this thing is. Then you take the cost of the mailing, the paper printing, inserting, and postage and do the arithmetic on this, and you will wind up with an allowable cost per order. So that's how you price the thing, and that's how you do it. It's all arithmetic.
0: We'll get into that, I'm sure, in a little bit. So you started this Who's Mailing What? So in short, what happened? How big did you build it up?
1: I tested 10,000 pieces to DM News and to, I think, the folio list.
0: Is DM News a paid subscription? No,
1: we mailed 5,000 each. Yeah. $5,000 to DM News. And 5000 to Folio.
0: What was Folio? The
1: magazine manager. And that was paid. DM News is free. I think we got 2% at $99. $99 a year? Yeah, 99 a year paid. We had 1,000 subscribers, I think. And that started us off.
0: 1,000 subscribers at 99 bucks a year?
1: I think like that, yeah. And then we
0: started doing it. And then part of the
1: deal was we have a list of all the new mailings that came in from the archive and people could order copies of the mailings. The newsletter talked about the mailings, and people could order copies of the mailings, which we would photocopy and turn into folding dummies and sell them for twenty, thirty, forty bucks. And we started a business. Today, we moved that thing down to Target Marketing in Philadelphia. Today, the archive is thriving. It's on the internet, so you can go online and actually order and download mailings. See what other people are doing for a fee, and the most valuable asset any copywriter has is, I believe, a swipe file. Seeing what other people have done and then stealing smart, and ideally seeing those mailings which have been controlled
0: and stealing smart. On your swipe file, do you offer any information on whether the mailing was a winner, or are they all winners, or
1: you can't know whether it's a winner or not, but you can know it's a winner if you keep getting it over and over again. So. Now this is the who's mailing what archives. It's on the internet. Some of these mailings are so-called brand controls that have been received every year for three years. The Wall Street Journal mailing of two young men was mailed for 15 years, 20 years as the control. Bill Bonner's mailing for International Living, Agora, he wrote that as a dry test. It was cash positive from day one. It is still being reused 30 years later.
0: I want to talk about some of these stories. I know you've got them in your book, Method Marketing. What do you know is the most successful direct mail piece of all time?
1: The two young men mailing of, a guy named Martin Conroy for the Wall Street Journal. So Martin Conroy, is he the one who wrote it? Yeah. And he was a copywriter? He was a freelance copywriter. He wrote the thing that one fine spring day 25 years ago, two men returned to their 25th reunion at college. They were very much alike. They both had jobs. They both had wives. They both had a couple of kids. And both coincidentally went to work for the same company. The only difference was one of these young men was the president and the other was the manager of the department. What made the difference? He never says it, but the implication was that the guy who became president read the Wall Street Journal. It was a two-page letter, 800 and some words. I called Paul Bell, the circulation manager of the Wall Street Journal, and I said, let me run some numbers by you. I said, you have a million subscribers, yes. And would you say that 50% of them came in via this two young men mailing, yes. And I ran out the numbers on them and I said, that says to me that this mailing over the years has brought in in excess of $1 billion in subscription revenue to the Wall Street Journal and as such is the most successful mailing ever created. And there was silent on the other end. And finally he said in a very small voice, Please don't tell Marty Conroy. He will raise
0: his prices. So at that time, before they did that mailing, how small or large was the Wall Street Journal? Were they just getting started?
1: No, no, no. They were in business. Then they had several others. And so they had a series of controls, and when one would flag a little bit, they'd drop another one in there. The ideal scenario for any marketer is to have two or three controls. And the minute you have a control... You do two things. You tweak the control. You do all kinds of little tweaks on the control to make it better. You tweak the offer. You tweak the price, whatever. And then you go out and you hire people to write mailings against it to try and beat that.
0: That Wall Street Journal offer, what kind of offer was that? Do you remember? Was uh, it a soft offer, send no money? And yeah, d- it, was, it
1: was certainly a soft offer, send no money. I think it was for $99 for a year or something like that. Yeah, I don't remember. Have you
0: seen knockoffs of that promotion that have done really well in a big scale?
1: I've seen knockoffs of it, whether they've done well or not. I don't know. I've seen a lot of people try and knock this thing off, in versions of it. And you haven't seen the thing over and over again, probably it didn't do all that well.
0: Did Martin Conroy, was he able to do some other blockbuster copy <laughs> other than that one, or was that his claim to fame? That was
1: his blockbuster. He worked for the Wall Street Journal for years, and he's written a number of controls for them. He since died. But he did very well as a copywriter.
0: Tell me this story about boardroom, Marty Edelson.
1: Edelson was a salesman for magazines. Magazine called The Reporter many years ago. He had an idea for a newsletter, which would be a digest of business stories, and he called it Boardroom Reports. And he had a copywriter named Mel Martin, who came up with the idea he called Fascinations.
0: Did you know Mel Martin?
1: Never did, no. And in fact, I was going to do a story about Boardroom. Marty Edelson had two subscriptions to Who's Mailing What, and I said, I want to do a story about your mailing, so I see so many of them. Who's your copywriter? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. And furthermore, if you do a story on me or this copywriter, I will cancel my subscriptions.
0: Now, was it the Fascination guy? Yeah. At that time, okay. Yes.
1: Yeah. And he died. He was a heavy smoker and not well man. The slowest copywriter in Christendom. He would spend a week on an envelope. But he put Marty Edelton in business and parents started him on our way to a $125 million publishing empire. These fascinations, what the credit card companies don't want you to know, what never to eat on an airline, those kind of stoppers.
0: I've heard of him, but I was under the impression Eugene Schwartz put him on the map.
1: No, Schwartz did a lot of work for him, and Schwartz did a number of his books, and Schwartz did a bunch of books for Rodale.
0: I heard this speech with Schwartz, you know, speaking to Agora or one of those publishers. And he talks about how Marty Edelson called him in, he sat down and Marty Edelson had this crazy idea about this newsletter and Schwartz was just taking notes and then his wife was making up and he put the ad together like in thirty minutes.
1: Schwartz was in on it and Schwartz may have written the first mailing for him. Mel Martin used to write the cover of the newsletter which had the articles. And he gave the articles very sexy titles, which were the basis of the fascinations. And then he tried a mailing based on these fascinations, and it took off like a rocket. And he said, What Never to Eat on an Airplane, see page 93, or whatever. Thinking about it, Schwartz may have done the newsletters and Martin done the boardroom books. I'm not sure. But Martin was involved in the startup of the newsletter as well, because he wrote the covers for him. But it was a case of where great copy, brilliant copy, really involving copy, so intrigued, the people who read it, that they signed up, and in fact, the copy for the mailings was better than the copy in the magazine, in the newsletters, which I found then and find now quintessentially boring. You mean the magogs? Yeah, yeah, the newsletter itself. Oh, the newsletter itself. Generally speaking, Magologs are more interesting than the things they're selling.
0: Did you know Eugene Schwartz?
1: I met him several times, yeah. yeah. He was a big, tall, skinny guy, a major collector of art, famous collector of modern art.
0: Who do you believe are some of the greatest copywriters, dead or alive?
1: Bill Jamie of course. J-A-Y-M-E. And who is he? Jamie was a guy, very urbane, brilliant guy who lived in New York. His building was going co-op and he couldn't afford to buy it. So he persuaded Consumer Reports to put him on retainer and he'd do all their work for them. And he moved out to San Francisco. And whereupon he hit the jackpot. If you're going to start a magazine at that time, the guy you talked to for the dry test and the wet test was Bill Jamie. And he would charge 20000 bucks a package, which was huge money in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And Jamie made a fortune. He had tremendous mystique. He was funny as hell. And he was probably the best magazine copywriter around
0: ever. And so he put Consumer Reports on the map?
1: He did a lot of early mailings for Consumer Reports, yes. He kept them going. But then he found himself with psychology today and civilization. And guys would come to him and say, I'll start a magazine, and I want you to write the mailing package for it. And Jamie would say, fine, tell me about the magazine, you'd tell him. And Jamie would say, fine, I'll do a package. And the kid would say, well, don't you want to know the articles that we're going to have in the magazine? Jamie said, no, I'll make them up. And Jamie said, I knew the audience I was writing to. These were my people. They'd responded to many of my mailings before, therefore I knew what kind of articles they would respond to. So he would actually frame the magazine as well as write the direct mail package.
0: Did he ever teach copywriting? No. Never revealed his methods anywhere? For more exclusive interviews on business, marketing, advertising, and copywriting, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com you know Brian Kurtz? Yeah, I've heard of him.
1: Boardroom has a CD with all of Jamie's mailings on them, and that's for sale. And you could probably offer that for sale on a joint venture basis with them.
0: I heard you on that. Remember they did that Bob Bly and Joe Vitale did that Eugene Schwartz thing that you were on the phone call with Abraham? and Yeah, 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 yeah. I listened to it, and you kind of indicated that some of these guys were like snake oil salesmen. Oh, they were. What do you mean by that, and what category of copywriters do you consider that?
1: Gene Schwartz published his own books and sold them by mail. He had a company, his own company called Instant Improvement. These are the headlines from this giant 9x12 envelope that he wrote. How modern Chinese medicine helps both men and women burn disease out of your body using nothing more than the palm of your hand. How to treat high blood pressure, bursitis, and arthritis and prevent them from degenerating further, or even reverse them simply by massaging the outside of the legs in a downward way. Eventually throw away your glasses and never need to see an eye doctor again simply by rubbing around the eyes for a few minutes every day. Three, how to rub your stomach away. The simplest and most natural way to lose weight is by this effortless two-minute exercise. By applying this exercise faithfully, he regulated his bowel movement, lost 40 pounds, and was filled with new energy. In just a few weeks, she had lost five inches in her waist, hips, and thigh area. That's just crap. But it sold a ton of books. It's an interesting story about Schwartz, too. The FTC was all over him for this stuff, for this kind of copy. And I think he took it up to the Supreme
0: Court. Yeah, I heard he took it to the Supreme Court.
1: And you cannot say something that is not true in copy. However, in publishing a book, a book cannot be censored. So you can say all this stuff in a book and publish it, because it's free speech. Then the question is, okay, if the book says that, can your promotion make the same claims as the book? And Schwartz argued, yes. The book makes these claims, therefore the promotional copy for the book should be able to make the claims, and the Supreme Court upheld it, so he was allowed to write all this stuff.
0: He was entangled in legal stuff for years, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But he won that one, and if the book says it, the mailing can say it. It's a huge win for him.
0: Was that a win for the direct mail industry, do you think?
1: Probably. I'm not sure it was a win for the consumer, it was an important decision.
0: Well, so he talks about in headlines, at least from the stuff I've learned from him, the purpose of the headline is to get attention and to get them to read the next line. And his headlines, even though it was in the material, it may have not had anything to do with the product or service. Really, the main goal of that was to get them to read on.
1: He said, the headline is the ticket on the meat. And he said, the worst thing you can commit is to run an ad with no headline. Axel Anderson, my guru, said, the headline selects the audience. If your headline is about natural healing and you're going to somebody who is a heavy smoker, chances are you're not talking to that person.
0: What other copywriters do you think were just all-time greatest? Like, you gave me one example. Who else do you admire?
1: Mel Martin, Gene Schwartz, Jay Abraham. Outstanding writer. Did he write all his main promotions back in the yeah. 80s? There were a bunch of guys, Jay Abraham, Gary Halbert, a guy named Drew Allen Kaplan, who I call were masters of what I call California hype. And I was really intense, very, very hypey, excited, filled with promises, filled with benefits, breathless benefits. You just got to order this thing because there's just so much in it. It was never my style. I was never Jamie's style. But these are guys who really made people believe they were going to live to be 150 and all that stuff.
0: Do you know of any great promotions Albert did, direct mail wise?
1: I'm grappling with Gary Halbert. You're going back a while. Halbert did have a theory, and this is directly related to direct mail. When mail arrived, you sorted into two piles, the A pile and the B pile. The A pile is the important stuff. The bill is the letter from your kid in Iraq, notes from family, social security check, all that kind of stuff. The B pile is everything else. Halbert said, if you can create direct mail packages that people thought should be in the A pile, and we put them in the A pile, you were way ahead of the game. And he tried to do that. My reaction to that is, if you put a piece of junk mail in the A pile, thinking it's an A pile letter, and then you find out it's a B pile, direct mail package, you'll feel ripped off and be pissed off and chuck it out. So there are two theories on that one. As a gal named Lee Pierce said, all direct mail is opened over the wastebasket.
0: Now, who is Lee Pierce?
1: L-E-A Pierce, P-I-E-R-C-E. She's a Chicago copywriter.
0: Did that come from her, that yeah, statement? Yeah. Halpert used to quote that.
1: Did he? Maybe she got it from Howard. I don't know. I first heard it from her.
0: So from what you know about direct mail, there's been people who have tested a pile, blank envelope, live stamp, compared to teaser copy on the envelope. Yep. Which one's better to go?
1: You got to test. Every offer, every mailing, every product, every list is different.
0: I did an interview with Melvin Powers, and he was talking about he would test only a 1,000 pieces to get a good idea. He says 1,000 if you're hesitant, do 3,000. What do you think is a good statistical test for a direct mail promotion?
1: When I got into the business, the benchmark was 5,000. The reason for the 5,000 was the benchmark response to direct mailing was 2%. 2% of 5,000 is a 100 orders. A hundred orders is enough of a back end to be statistically viable to see how the buyers would perform. So five thousand would bring you a hundred orders. With a hundred orders, you could tell what the attrition would be, what the profit would be and so on. Today the normal response of direct mail is I believe not anywhere near two percent. So you've probably got to mail ten or fifteen thousand. Ed Mayer, M A Y E R, he was a guy who worked for I think, one of the big agents. He said, success in direct mail is dependent on the following formula, 40% list, 40% offer, and 20% everything else. And that, of course, pisses off copywriters, because the copywriters is the 20% everything else. But when you think about it, you send it to the wrong list, you're dead. You send a bad offer, you're dead. But if it's the great offer to the right list, the other 20% is about right. And Dick Benson, the great guru Dick Benson, said, I know of no direct marketer who spends enough time on lists. Tell me the story of Kurt Strohacker. Kurt Strohacker is a guy who loves cars, fixing up cars, restoring cars. And he started a company called Eastwood, which offered to car restorers, people who like to tinker with cars. Not Jay Leno, who has one of the great car collections in the world, but the guys who work for Leno, those kind of guys who do all the tinkering and restoring. And he put together a catalog for car restorers, not the model specific parts but the stuff to do body, the paint stuff, and all that kind of thing. And Straw Hacker was interesting because when somebody went to work for his company, Eastwood, no matter what they did at the company, whether in the mailroom or executive vice president, the first thing they learned to do was to answer the phone and become a telephone sales rep. So that, say, at Christmas time, when sales were really hot and people were ordering like crazy, They could just put out an all-points bulletin all over the company and saying You are now a telemarketer, and all the people would have on their desk the computer stuff needed to take orders and fill orders. And that's a very interesting idea for a catalog company or any kind of company, that rather than put people on hold or anything else, just make sure that everybody in the company is a capable rep and knows how to, one, take an order and then also upsell. If you're buying this kind of paint... The best brushes for you to use is this eighth-inch brush for the detail work, this quarter-inch brush for bigger patches, and the five-inch brush for big swat. I don't know. You're selling more stuff and more stuff. I don't know whether catalog companies do that now, but certainly smaller companies should do it if they don't. Others have telemarketing divisions, and when they run out of people on the telephone, they can often spill over to people at home and whatever who can take over stuff. But it's a good idea to have everybody in the company know what it's like to sell your product.
0: Can one still make it in the direct mail business with the rising cost of postage and space advertising?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. First of all, with the CAN-SPAM Act and with the Do Not Call list, I believe direct mail is the workhorse of direct marketing. Is the
0: direct mail industry in jeopardy for any of these type of laws or Do Not Mail lists things like that?
1: A lot of people have been muttering about that for years. But I mean, it's free speech. What the hell? You know, you're not intruding on the guy's telephone. You're not spamming him on the computer. And because of the cost constraints on direct mail, a number ten business mailing is probably five or six hundred bucks. You add in postage per thousand, fifty cents a piece. Well, if you're sending out a whole bunch of mailings to the wrong people, it doesn't take a whole lot of fifty cent pieces going down the sewer to have you start losing money. So the cost of direct mail makes it a very disciplined art, science, and business.
0: The increasing costs has reduced the true junk mail.
1: Yeah, that's now become
0: spam. Before you sold off your Who's Mailing What, how many subscribers did you have for that?
1: At the peak, we had 1,700.
0: Did they make an offer? Or did you?
1: Yeah, I ran into somebody that said, I'd like to get into a magazine rather than do this damn newsletter for the rest of my life. And Target Marketing Magazine was in deep trouble. And so we cut a deal, and I sold out the company and moved to Philadelphia
0: you sold your Who's Mailing What?
1: Yeah. And then did you acquire
0: Target Marketing?
1: No, they acquired me. Oh, so they acquired you. And I moved to Philadelphia, and we ran Who's Mailing What out of Philadelphia and took over Target Marketing and saved it. I could not take the corporate nonsense, so I left after about five or six years. My wife Peggy is now a publisher of Target Marketing, Who's Mailing What, and she started three or four other magazines and a whole bunch of Internet-based products. She's much savvier than I am. She's a much better manager
0: than I am. The Target magazine, tell me about that. How many subscribers do you have and what is
1: it? I think mean, it's, it's 30,000 or something. I don't know. It's free if you qualify. The interesting question now is, with all print magazines, how can you cut down this horrendous cost of paper printing, binding, and postage? And one way is to deliver these things over the Internet.
0: How's that working for you?
1: Just time to do that. But Playgirl magazine just announced it was no longer printed magazine. They're going to just deliver over the Internet. I get the Wall Street Journal every day, but they sent me a renewal. I don't know it's three hundred and fifty or four hundred and fifty bucks or something, and I find myself skimming it in the morning, and then going to the website. I pay another $50, fifty, seventy-five, hundred bucks to get everything on the web. Well, I'm not going to renew the Wall Street Journal printed version. So I'm just going to pay them to get everything on the website. I'll continue to take the Philadelphia Inquirer and the New York Times, and i like something to read over coffee rather than hit the computer before I have my eyes open. But the Wall Street Journal is infinitely easier to read on the Internet than it is
0: in hard copy. What do you see as one of the greatest opportunities in the direct mail business today, whether it's markets or any opportunity that you see coming up?
1: My sense is that anybody who has a product or a service that is unique and valuable and priced well, and understand the value of a single customer will do well. You got a ton of people who are out there scrambling around for leads, doing all sorts of stuff to get leads, and they don't know what the hell to do with the lead once they got it. They don't know how to write that person and thank them for the lead in a personal way, make them a great offer, and bring them on board bit by bit and win them over. The five-step sequence for a great customer is you assume that a person is a prospect. Now, you assume that person is a suspect anybody out there on a list that's a suspect. And if you can turn that suspect into a prospect and then sell that prospect, turn him into a customer, you're well along. Then the deal is to get that customer to buy again from you and become a repeat customer. And the ultimate fifth step is to get that person to be an advocate for you. And in fact tell people you have great product and a great service and a great company and they should be customers of yours too. That's a five step thing. Now you see all the crap you get on your computer in terms of spam every day. And here people are people just throwing eggs against the wall hoping some of it will stick. And there are no serious money constraints on using the Internet for marketing and soliciting, unlike direct mail, which costs 50 cents a piece. This thing costs 50 cents for 50,000. I don't know. So people just do anything they want, and the result is that there's always 10, 15, 20 people are stupid enough to sign up for one of these things. But. I think successful selling on the Internet requires a background in all facets of old-fashioned direct marketing. You go to the right list. Instead of a teaser on some envelope, you have a subject line, which is irresistible. And the subject line, when you click on it, it dissolves into something that gives you benefits, 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 and so on. And that's true of direct mail. It's true of the Internet. Many people are just looking for as many names as they can get hold of and get as many responses as they can get and hope some of it sticks. But that's not great, building a business.
0: Are you still doing copywriting packages today?
1: I will. My time is limited, and I'm not actively soliciting clients.
0: Tell me about one of your best copywriting successes, a package that you wrote, and the results it gave for the client.
1: I had two or three long-term controls. One was for Archaeology Magazine. They came to you? Yeah, they came to me. And The day I sat down to write that, a Greek archaeologist went into a mound in northern Greece and came upon the tomb of Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great.
0: Well, this was on the news?
1: This was in the news. It was a newspaper that day and it was an electrifying discovery. And that find went on to become a major museum show called The Search for Alexander, which is in Washington and in New York and around the world. But the stuff that this guy found and going in and finding it was electric and I told that story in the letter. And said so that you can be part of this kind of thrilling, high adventure in archaeology and reliving the past and finding these great treasures. And that thing was controlled for five years. It's probably the best package I ever wrote. To how many subscriptions did it sell? I don't know. This is way back. And you were paid as a
0: copywriter a fee to write the package, and did you earn royalties every time no, they mailed? No no, no, no,
1: no, no. It was just a one-time fee. Sure. Now talk to Bill Jamie about this. A lot of copywriters go on the royalty thing. And for a copywriter, you make a lot of money. But for the mailer, let's say you have three or four different packages out there, and you decide to combine some pieces. You use a Denny Hatch envelope with a Bill Jamie letter with a John Francis tie circular with somebody else's order form. And what the hell do you do when all these people are on royalties? So Jamie used to say, you just want to take the money and run. It was too complicated otherwise.
0: So Jamie never did royalties? no. Just one-time fee, and
1: you're Just done. one-time fee, yep. And the guy owned it. I'm not real comfortable with royalties. First of all, direct marketers are not set up for royalties. Book publishers are set up for royalties. You have a contract. You have an inventory control system, which is tied into the accounting. Books out, royalties in. Books returned, royalties deducted with direct mail, you sign a royalty deal with a marketing manager, and then the marketing manager is fired, and some new marketing manager comes in, doesn't know anything about the royalty deal, and is mailing your piece all over the lot, and you have no idea how many you mailed, and It's very untidy in the direct mail business, because they're not set up to pay royalties. I think you're better off with just an upfront fee.
0: What prompted you to write the 2,239 Tested Secrets for Direct Marketing Success? Did that come before million-dollar mailings? Million-dollar mailings was before that. Let's talk about million-dollar mailing. What prompted you to put that together, and was that an effort to help promote your Who's Mailing What?
1: Yeah, basically all the business books I've written have been to legitimize what I do. I never expected to make a whole lot of money on any of this stuff.
0: But the back end was the Who's Mailing What service?
1: I didn't really start writing business books until I went to work for target marketing, but that gave legitimacy to me as an editor of target marketing, legitimacy to me later as a direct mail consultant. The 239 tested Secrets, which I did with Don Jackson, we knew that there were people all over the industry who had experiences and rules of their own that they'd worked on. And I wrote 750 people, and I said, "We're putting together this book. Share with readers the rules that you have come up with in direct mail and advertising, copy or everything else. And I got about 150 responses from people with all these rules, and I took all the rules and categorized them in various subject areas, and it became the book, with Jackson and me writing commentary before, during, and after. Axel Anderson, my great guru, we we're going to call it 2,339 rules, he said the word rules doesn't sell. Call it secrets. So we called it Secrets of Direct Marketing Success. And the thing's been chugging along for 10 years or so. Did you only do it in hardcover? No, it was also in paperback. Is million-dollar mailings in paperback? No, no. That's hardcover. Yeah. The publisher of million-dollar mailings and method marketing, he's kind of let them go out of print, so i got to figure out what to do about them, because I keep getting requests for that stuff.
0: So it's out of
1: print? I don't know, but they're hard to get. Amazon doesn't have in stock.
0: Okay, so you didn't make a whole lot of money on the book sales. You probably made a royalty on everything, right? Yeah, but not a whole lot. What I'm trying to get at is for people out there who are experts or who have access to experts, having a book, the money comes down the road in credentializing yourself as an expert within your industry. Absolutely. So having these books, what did those do for you? It got you
1: clients? Yeah, oh, yeah. It got me clients. you on the internet you see all the books I wrote.
0: Were you surprised at what these books did for you within the direct mail?
1: No. If you have books out there,
0: as you say, it credentializes you.
1: It legitimizes you. And they happen to be a pretty good read. It's not dry as dust, dry as dirt, PhD kind of academic writing. They flow pretty easy. With the twenty three hundred and thirty nine tested secrets, it is not Don Jackson and me talking mainly. It's one hundred and fifty other people. Right, other the experts. And in that sense, also, we put in there conflicting rules. Halder would say the A pile and the B pile. Jamie would say never disguise the fact that this is commercial mail. Absolutely opposite advice. But then you say all things are tested you test it. And in that book, generally speaking, if a marketing person wants to try something and the boss says, find out if it's been done before, very likely the person will be able to go into that book and find somebody who's got that rule in there. Either way. So it's fun in that it legitimizes decisions for people, helps them out. Malcolm Decker, great copywriter. All right, who was he? Copywriter with the Institute for Children's Literature in Westport and a principal in that, and he used to sell collectible stamps. He said there are two rules and two rules only in direct marketing. Rule one, test everything. Rule two, see rule one. The corollary to that is Ed Mayer. Ed Mayer is a guy from one of the big agencies, the guy who said the 40 40 20 rule. And Ed Mayer said don't test whispers. Don't test pink paper versus blue paper. Don't test 995 versus 999. Tests are expensive. you got to look
0: for breakthroughs in tests. Albert used to talk about that. Don't test whispers. Test things that scream important stuff. Yeah, test the important stuff. Let me ask you this. Everybody who goes into business for themselves develops a list of their favorite free and paid resources. Can you give us an inside look at some of the resources that you would use to get a new venture off the ground? Or what are some of the resources that you use? What do you subscribe to and read that keeps you abreast of direct marketing, direct mail,
1: I would say to somebody who wants to get into it, hire experts. Example. Probably seven or eight years ago, a guy contacted me from Europe who wanted to start a children's book club that marketed successfully all over Europe and wanted to launch it here. And I'd run children's book clubs for Grolier and knew about book clubs. And they wanted to launch it using the European model, which was buying space ads in children's magazines. It was a terrific offer. And they hired me as a consultant. I went around, and I found there were very few children's magazines, and of those that there are, a number of them did not take advertising. So I said, you gotta go direct mail. They said, okay, and so I went to a guy named Dick Goldsmith who knows all about direct mail and who knows how to produce it and mail it. They want to get in the mail in a couple of months. They want to ram this thing through. And the average consultant, either you, you go to an agency who does it all or you get a consultant, the consultant does it all, and the consultant, in effect, runs a virtual agency. I mean, a copywriter here, a printer there, an inserter somewhere else, an envelope salesman somewhere else and all this, and puts the whole thing together. Goldsmith knew how to do that. And I said, Look, Goldsmith is expensive, but it's all gonna be under one roof and he will get the job done for you. So we went with their copy, my copy and design. Goldsmith put it together. The list person we used was not the best, but we handpicked the list for the test and the test went fine and we went on and it went fine. But I'm saying if you want to launch something, hire good professionals. Don't screw around yourself. Don't try and be a copywriter yourself. Don't try and be a job out printing yourself. Find and Get a good list broker, good printing broker, somebody who knows what the hell they're doing, and get professionals to do it. You're going to lose your
0: ass. Where can my listeners find a good, reliable resource for these professionals?
1: Goldsmith, H-O-R-A-H, for instance, was very successful. I think he still may be working for this book club ten years later. They like, he gets the stuff out. In terms of list brokerage, you've got to find the list broker who specializes in a specific area. A guy in England emailed me and said, who does upmarket mailings to rich people for expensive items? Who's the best list broker in that? And I called the contact and I sent him the name of the best person. You just got to ask around and talk to people and get people you're comfortable with. The guy from Europe, which does his book club for kids, we used a not-so-good fulfillment company to, to send out the membership mailings every month, and so we had to change that. And this fulfillment company became highly recommended, but their computer was not able to do the personalized stuff that we wanted to do to make the members feel special. So you got to get deep into it. The main thing is to hire a professional.
0: How about direct marketing news? What are some good magazines?
1: I would say Target Marketing, Catalog Success, and Fundraising Success, Peggy's Three Magazines, are really good. The others are DM News, which has now been bought by a British company, and they're not really direct marketers. They do the news of the business. You know, who's gone broke? Who's changing jobs? All that stuff. And then there's a thing called multi-channel merchant and direct. Multi-channel merchant used to be catalog age, but they now have got catalog, internet, telephone, etc. So it's multi-channel merchant. And then a magazine called Direct, which is a competition for Target Marketing. And then there's, for magazine people, folio and circulation management, and then there's even more niche stuff than that.
0: What are some of your most visited websites? I mean, do you have some sites that you continually reference that prove to be really good resources for what you're doing?
1: No. For what I'm doing, which is the newsletter, yeah, but I'm all over the lot with the newsletter, it's not direct marketing primarily. But you Google direct marketing, and you'll get a ton of stuff.
0: We'll wrap it up here. I want you to tell me the story about Bill Kennedy first, and then I want to direct my listeners to where they can get more information on your books and your site.
1: Kennedy got into the business of selling silver, and he would get investors and pay their way out to the Del Coronado Hotel in where is it, San Diego. Or... Yep, that's right here in San Diego. He'd probably take weekends at Del Coronado and persuade people to buy silver. And he was doing it through direct mail? Yeah. Incredible invitations, but he didn't do his arithmetic. And the markup on silver wasn't all that good, and he was losing his ass. And he wound up in jail. I mean, it's a sad story because I think something's wrong with the son, and the wife was left penniless, and that was awful. But he did not know his arithmetic, and arithmetic and direct marketing is everything. It ain't the business of branding, it's not the business of selling. It's acquiring customers and selling them more and more stuff and keeping them happy. It's the business of starting at the beginning, after testing and rolling out, building up a history of lifetime value. What is a customer worth to you over the customer's lifetime? How long will he be a customer and what will he pay you? And Then taking that information, going back to the original source of that name. So the list that maybe gives you the best upfront response may not give you the customers that bring you the most money. You cannot do enough data analysis and regression analysis of who your customers are, where they came from, what they're spending with you and what their profitability is. For example, one of the great direct marketers of all time is a guy named Bob Hacker from Seattle. And Packer said for catalogers, in the catalog business, the formula is RFM, recency, frequency, monetary value. The people who have spent the most money with you the most times recently and frequently are your best customers. And so you rank them into quintiles, the best, the second best, third best, fourth best, and the fifth best. And the fifth best are usually awful. They're usually bad customers. And The deal that catalogers have to do is figure out ways to move people from the second quintile into the first quintile, and the third quintile into the second quintile, and so on, and bring them along and get them to spend more and more money with you. In marketing, when you get new customers, you get a share of market. The next step is to get those customers to spend more with you, and that share of wallet. hacker would say to catalogers, you want to make money this Christmas season? Do not mail the bottom two-fifths of your list and the guys couldn't stand the idea of your customers. Well, chances are that Hacker was right. That the top quintile, you mail once a month. The second quintile, you mail something every two months. The third quintile, maybe every three months. fourth and fifth quintile, you mail them once a year, you know, just to see if they're alive. But don't spend money mailing people that have a history of not buying with you. And many people can't stand that.
0: That's good. Where can my visitors go to learn more about you? What are some of your websites that they can uh, check out?
1: DennyHatch.com and businesscommonsense.com, which is a free newsletter that's all over the lot, but basically marketing. Thanks so much. I appreciate, appreciate it.
0: it. For more interviews like this, go to hardtofindseminars.com. I hope you've enjoyed this interview with Denny Hatch. For more information, go to his website, businesscommonsense.com and com. Thanks for listening.